Acts 17, uh, verses 16 to 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reckoned in, reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know that this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dion, Dion, Dionysus, an Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kay. Well, I, I extend the, uh, the welcome that has already been given. Uh, our ranks thin this time of year, but then we are swelled by those of you who are here in thongs. 
<laughs> who are visiting and forgot to pack appropriate clothing. I mean, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, we, we thank you for uh, uh, coming to worship with us today and, um, and uh, being part of God's family. It's, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it, that you can you know, step out of doors, head down a highway and reunite with people who are of the same kith and kin as yourself spiritually in the Lord Jesus. So welcome again. It's customary uh, in this service in many churches to uh, sort of give a sermon about making New Year's resolutions, isn't it? You know, and shaping up the ship and you know, doing what we knew we should have done this year, next year and all that sort of thing. But this morning I want to lift our horizons a little to a, a broader framework <clears throat> because I believe that in 2018 in this country it was a hinge year in history. Uh, I think in terms of the spirit of the nation it was particularly a watershed year in terms of things that have happened particularly in the political and uh, the area of government uh, and that sphere. But we should have seen this coming. We are living in a society where the ideas that people have today run against the grain of how the universe is actually made. Uh, and if you run your hand against the grain of God's world, we should not be surprised that people get hurt there are splinters to be experienced. But in uh, this society, and of course I'm talking about the, the many, many issues, but one in particular this last year was the issue that came before us of uh, the changing of the definition of marriage from what has been accepted as uh, a heterosexual union with the potential to produce families. This idea, we have mistakenly think, thought, was just an isolated concept. But in fact, it has been coming since the 1930s. There is a whole philosophical ground shift that began in very obscure halls of academia in Strasbourg in the 30s. And certain writers like Herbert Marcuse, uh, developed this idea called cultural Marxism, or others called it that. Today we would refer to these set of ideas and ways of thinking as political correctness. And this is a whole drama, a whole way of approaching life on this planet. The fundamental idea is that the human spirit is essentially good and needs liberating. That's the foundational quest for society. And so if it is going to be liberated, unlike the old Marxism, liberating it from capitalist overlords, we need our thinking, our very identity and any constraint to be removed. And those who would restrain the human spirit are the enemy. These constraining forces, these moralities, must be confronted. And so it's no accident that day by day in the press we see the strategies of Herbert Marcuse and the Strasbourg School carried out before us. Unwittingly, we absorb a lot of this. 
Their strategy is to destabilise language, to destabilise institutions, to destabilise structures of thinking, as if these things, like family, like the sanctity of life, all these things are just structures of thinking that we have constructed. They have no reality in and of themselves. It's a combination of postmodern thinking, Freudian thinking, and old existentialism with the strategy of Marxism thrown in. So we, people sitting here, if you have a worldview that has absolutes that you believe are unchangeable, we are part of the repressors. And this view speaks of repressive toleration, which is the wrong view of toleration. So even the word now, toleration, means that we must affirm what we cannot abide. That's the world in which we live. There is legislation, uh, there are court cases uh, affecting Christian organisations that friends of ours are involved in right this moment, going right the way through into the new year. Where there will be aspects of this undergirding legislation that is brought before our federal parliament this year. Things to do with the, the ability to counsel a willing homosexual about their disorder. About even using language like disorder in the same sentence as homosexuality will be regarded as intolerable. The danger is that uh, even seminaries and Christian schools will not be able to teach the very foundational narrative and the ethics that come from that if this legislation goes through. Why I point this out is not to get you all alert and excited, but to point out how this has been coming for a long time and uh, it is already uh, abroad in, in the overseas context and particularly in countries like Belgium and Holland. And it's the same spirit, it's the same mentality that is behind euthanasia legislation. It's the same spirit that would regard anyone who could constrain someone's right to kill themselves as a repression of expression. We are living in a very strange world, I think you would admit. It's quite upside down. It began to be seen in the 60s through the sexual revolution. It was this philosophy that drove that. I can remember collecting, when I was a young pastor in the 90s, going around the corner from my church and buying a Time magazine, which could not be published in the United States today. On the cover, it had the phrase, America's gay community, the most corrosive influence in America today. Can you imagine buying that today? That was in 1995, how quickly the wheel has turned. And it has turned not because there is new science or new arguments, but because of advertising, the use of media, and the use of emotional argument devoid of reason. In fact, if you try and reason into this wind, you will be attacked, you'll be accused of being a hater of some sort of person, whether it's homosexuals or refugees or Muslims or whatever, if you raise any meta-narrative, any 
absolute framework, then you must be attacked. There are now situations in Great Britain where government-funded institutions will come around to the schools and teach your children that their parents assigned their gender at birth. That's absolute nonsense. I have yet to meet a parent that looked at their son and said, hmm, what do you think they'll be? <laughs> Better buy them a tutu and a Barbie doll just in case. Absolute nonsense. You see, people stop thinking when political correctness becomes common sense. And the difference that has happened in our society in the last couple of years is that this used to be trapped amongst the pointy heads in the academy, but it's now filtered down into the education system. So that today you send your child to school not to learn how to think, that was the old system, but you learn what to think. And that's the danger of the world that we live in. And we must see that and see it. Now, I'm not that upset by what the world does. We can expect the world to be stupid. It's lost. It has no interest in absolutes. What I'm more concerned about is the church, the people who have the light. But a process has sort of happened in our churches where we have created a new sort of evangelical. And I'm not worried about the liberals. They turned their back on God two centuries ago. They'll die out. They always do. But it's the evangelicals I'm particularly concerned about, the people who think they're upholding the gospel. These are the ones that concern me. And the corrosive influence that I see happening in the seminaries, in the colleges, and then in the churches, and then in the pews, goes something like this. First of all, you sense that life in the world is a little hot, and there are hot potatoes you shouldn't touch. So what we'll present to the world is maybe the cross and resurrection and salvation. We might probably not even mention atonement because people don't like that concept today. We'll snip that one out. So we, we avoid the hot potatoes, and then a little while later, we're a little uncertain about the ethical side of the church and the clear teachings of Scripture we become wavery about, a bit rubbery. We feel a bit inadequate. And then the next stage, we start to refuse to go public on these things, lest someone say something nasty to us. And the next stage, we find we're endorsing these things. That's how it's happening. And the product is the progressive evangelical, who is nothing other than a former Christian pickled in political correctness. It happens over time. But this is not how we began. And this is not how we would got to this point. A progressive evangelicalism always dies and becomes a dead liberalism. That's church history. Let's look at how we began, because we would not have began, we could not have made it to this point in history as a church, were it not for people like Paul. Paul comes out of the docks in Athens as the, the man bearing the evangel of God, the front line of progress of the gospel comes with Paul to Athens. 
And we read that his spirit was provoked within him. I remember having that same experience uh, when my wife and I were at a conference in Bali last year with SIL. And uh, everywhere we went, it was ironic that here we're discussing the translation of the scriptures and organisational renewal of SIL International. And we're in this wonderful uh, beachside resort built by a former president. And we went out to eat every day, surrounded by plastic, grotesque idols, sensual and obvious. And you can't help but sort of feel sad when you, you start to hear these things and you have conversations with the taxi drivers and the porters and their superstitions are overwhelming their lives. It becomes a difficult place to live. And Paul's spirit was provoked. Now that's a healthy thing. If you feel comfortable in vinegar, there's something wrong with you. We need to have our spirits provoked. But oftentimes, when our spirits are provoked, we retreat. <laughs> That's a natural reaction. We clump together in a holy huddle, but we don't want to actually reason. Paul reasoned in the synagogue, in the marketplace, we're told. So he went mass media. He put the gospel out there. He was not just saying, I'm not going to shift, I'm going to stand my flag on this hill and I'm not going to move. He actually was on the front foot. He was actually uh, bringing the gospel into this place of confusion. We've got to understand when it says that he reasoned uh, in the synagogue and in the marketplace every day, that that marketplace called the Agora it's not like the Vic market. There aren't people selling veggies there and you know, things off the back of trucks. This is a place where debates were held. It's the, the, the public forum for religious and philosophical ideas. In fact, in this world, Paul's world, there is no distinction between philosophy and theology. They're the same thing. They're all wrapped up together. And he argued with different sorts. He argued with the Epicurean philosophers. These were the ones who had a libertine view of life, much like the Herbert Marcuses of our age. And he argued with the Stoics, who were people who emphasised self-control and the human potential movement. And they were the people who wanted to straighten things up. It's very much like our political options that we have today. And he argued with these... And uh, he was misunderstood. They thought he was talking about two deities, uh, Jesus and Anastasis, resurrection. They thought he was speaking about two deities, one and their con Jesus and his consort. And uh, so then we read in 19, verse 19 that they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, Areopagus saying, I had trouble... <laughs> May we know this new teaching that you're presenting. Now, that's a lovely euphemistic way of putting it. It's a real sweetheart phrase. It's like that phrase when you read the news and they interview the police have arrested someone. They say, oh, so-and-so under arrest. No, he's just helping us with our inquiries. Uh, rubbish he is. <laughs> and here, this is a situation where... He's brought before the panel, the legal panel, which upholds 
religious license in Athens. You can't practice your religion until you get a license from these people. They have the power to try you. This is an arraignment hearing that is happening and Paul is brought before them to give answers to for his, his actions of coming out with ideas that are not politically correct. In fact, the philosopher Socrates in 335 was tried and convicted and, and killed for bringing in new ideas by this same tribune, not the same people, obviously, but in the same marketplace, the marketplace of ideas. This is a dangerous and precarious situation in which we find our apostle. So what are the terms of trade? Basically, if Paul's going to get his license, he's got to do three things. First of all, he's got to outline some mystical vision where he can explain where one day he ran into this particular deity that he wants to set up a shrine for. One, a mystical vision. Second thing, he's got to demonstrate that he's got the bankroll to cover building a shrine at least, maybe a temple, to that deity and to be off a regular feast for people such as themselves to honour that deity. He's got to be able to cover the cost. And then he should be able to come up with some token or some image that the rest of them can pop into their photo album, Pandora's box of deities. If he can do that, he'll save his neck. So that's the terms of trade that are on offer when Paul is arraigned by this court. He has a choice. He could take what's on offer. Like the, uh, I don't know if you're aware that the World Council of Parliament of Religions had a meeting a couple of years ago in Adelaide. And Christians were represented, not by evangelicals of course, because the terms of trade were too high, too high a cost. The terms of trade offered to the church today is that we should accept that we are but one of many colourful spiritualities. It's the ABC version of religion. And Paul could have taken that offer. As long as we are one of the monotheisms, we will be respected as one of the great religions of the world. We believe in one. Basically, all religions are the same. It's like saying... You know, we have one God, therefore they're the same. It's like, I have one wife, and then you've got one wife, we must be married to the same person. It's nonsense, isn't it? And these terms of trade are compromising terms. And Paul, he could respect this move to pluralism. And if Paul had done that at this moment and said, oh, yeah, by the way, I had a vision, I got knocked off my horse. And he could have talked about the people that he'd healed and the lame man and Lister and, and others. Then he would have got a hearing. But he would have reinforced their terms of trade, that they had the right to decide divine truth. And he refused to take it. What does he do? Verse 22. Let's look at his strategy. He takes a sidestep. 
So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. So first thing, I'm not looking for a license for a new God. I'm talking about that empty pedestal down the street. Okay, he sidestepped that one. So there is no mention of a new divinity. But 23, there is no divine encounter. 24, verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all. To all mankind, life and breath and everything. Second point and third point, there'll be no dormitory. God doesn't live within a temple dormitory. He doesn't need to be sheltered from the elements. And there'll be no dinner. God has no vitamin deficiency. He is the one who generates life. He is the infinite one by definition. So to follow your terms of trade would be to tell lies about my God, and he won't do it. So there is no divine encounter, there's no dormitory, there's no dinner. And the thing that would have got up the nose of the Athenians is the next thing he says. This is not PC. This is not the way to go about winning friends and getting a nice, sweet hearing, an acceptable place in the marketplace of ideas. And he made from one man... Every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods, the rising and their falling, and the boundaries, the size of their empires, and their dwelling places. See, the Athenians thought they were a cut above. They were the epitome of humanity. And sure, the Greek Empire had been eclipsed by the Roman Empire by now, but they still thought of themselves as a cut above, as the superiors. And Paul says, there's no distinction. This is the end of discrimination <laughs> of the evil kind. There is no hierarchy of nations. We all are brothers of Adam. We come from one man. That's the radical egalitarian nature of real Christianity, it's powerful. And that one statement and that one idea changes legal systems right through history. Imagine if Paul had conceded that point that day and he had bowed the knee to Athenian arrogance. But he didn't because he knew his gospel and he knew his God. And then in verse 27, and he says, he determined the allotted periods and boundaries of that they should seek God, but this is a very difficult verse and it has not been translated well in my version, the one that came up the screen. What he's saying is God did these things so that people might look up and have some degree of gratitude for God, but instead they theorise about him and he's making an allusion here probably to Plato's cave, if you know about the philosopher Plato he had this idea that all we know is like shadows against the wall of a cave. And they're padding around in the dark, 
But God, the light, is just here with them. That's the irony he's saying. He is not far from us. Even why you guys are padding around in the dark, Paul said, God is right beside. That's not something the Athenians wanted to hear, I don't think. And then he quotes two of their scholars in verse 28. In him we live and move and have our being from Epimenides. Basically, our existence presumed his prior existence. In him we live and move and have our being. We don't determine our existence autonomously. And as even some of your own poets, the poets being the philosophers, have said, for we indeed are his offspring. That's from Aretas. The images of God we are. The irony Paul's saying is, I look at all this stuff you guys are doing. I look at this incredible tribune set up to justify God. And you are in the God-making business when in fact you should realise God is in the man-making business. How arrogant can you get? Being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. This creativity is nothing but stupidity. And you are culpable, Paul is saying. You are morally culpable for this stupidity. And it was ironic that in this age, if you read these same poets, they themselves criticised the polytheism and the mythology of Greece. And yet they couldn't bring themselves to break away from it. When it came to Christmas Day of their sort, they were always there in mass. That's the power of political correctness. But then Paul suddenly turns his tune even higher and he ratchets us up ratchets up the the volume here in verse 30 and 31 two of the most critical verses that the world needs to hear today paul reverses the tables he says in verse 30 the times of ignorance these times god overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. You see what Paul is saying? He's turned the table. He's saying ignorance today has no more place to hide, and all this enterprise needs to come and be deconstructed. All men everywhere, this is true justice, there's only going to be one rule, equality under God's rule. In fact, a date is here of your hearing, he's speaking to the tribune who could have his neck for this, he says, the date of your hearing has been fixed in God's book and the legal standard by which you're going to be judged is not my standard, it's not your Greek standard, it's the righteousness of God standard. So you better bone up on what that is. And the legal precedent has been set. And that precedent is the resurrection. 
That is the authentic, authentication of one rule, one religion, because there is only one that God has raised from the dead. We often look at the resurrection as some sort of comforting thought that you take to people on their deathbeds. But the resurrection is a political affront to all of humanity. It brings presidents to kneel, kings from their thrones. It is the great leveller. It is God's judgment word. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means the world has got enough data to worship him and him alone. There is no excuse not to worship Jesus Christ now that the resurrection has happened. Put the others aside. Check this one out first. The resurrection of Christ is the reason, the sole reason why you begin and end with Christ. You see what's happened here? Paul was out there on the front foot he was reasoning, he was unpicking the arguments of the foolish philosophers of his day, showing their limitations. He wasn't shirking the issue, he got in trouble. When he was in trouble, he didn't roll the flag up and be a good little boy. He actually saw those people as even more culpable than the philosophers. And Paul gave as good as he got and at that time, he turned the tables and he arraigned them. It's a phenomenal story. Paul was against culture. He didn't go out to redeem the culture. He didn't go out to have a generous orthodoxy. He was not the model of a left-wing progressive evangelical. He didn't take the terms that were offered him. He commanded repentance and soul allegiance to Jesus Christ, even though they weren't ready to hear it. And even though that could have taken his life. But the message is confirmed by the mood of the messenger. If he had not done that, then no one in that audience would have believed that Jesus Christ is Lord alone. Would they? His whole mood matched the message. His uncompromising mood matched the message. I had a phone call a few years ago when I was a pastor in Murrumbina and we'd started a um, couple of uh, halfway houses in what used to be our manses. I didn't need to live in the manse. In fact, one of them was so bad you wouldn't put you... Anyway, um, we decided to let... Um, let them out to Youth for Christ to put uh, girls that are in trouble into these, these manses. And uh, we did them up a bit, and etc. and it got in the local newspaper. And I remember the editor of the local newspaper ringing me up and uh, sort of congratulating me that I'd done a nice little justice act there and been a bit compassionate. And isn't that nice? And she goes, um, she says to me in the middle of it, uh, Oh, and of course, this comes with no strings attached. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, you don't expect them to come to church. And I said, well, actually, uh, you know, we don't feed them unless they come twice on Sunday. <laughs> she didn't know whether I was serious. <laughs> and I said, listen, I wouldn't have an interest in these girls if I hadn't met Jesus Christ. 
we would be building our own houses, not building houses for people who can never pay us back. That's because Jesus has changed us. She didn't want to hear that. I said, you put that in the paper. We're not wonderful people. We're people who have a new vision of the world. She didn't put that in the paper. (laughs) She wrote a nice little story about how sweet and inoffensive the church is. Folks, we aren't sweet, we're not inoffensive, we're the most dangerous thing to this culture if we put our front foot forward and every opportunity we have, we say, no, we are not just one spirituality amongst many, we are the truth and the resurrection of Christ is the reason for the season we are against the culture as Paul is because we love those who are blinded by the culture well what happened to Paul you can guess I've had the same thing happen to me in philosophy classes back in the 70s in uni as I was defending the one way Jesus message Some heard of the resurrection. When they heard of the resurrection from the dead, typical Greeks, they could not conceive in their fundamental assumptions, the axiomatic level at the base level of their assumptions, that the divine world could have anything to do with the created world. Therefore, this is bogus. When, in fact, the real historical data they need to take on board, it contradicts their fundamental axiomatic assumptions. But they couldn't do that. And so they mocked. And that's what happens today. Do you know, a couple of years ago, working in an evangelical institution, a seminary, I was saying this to Ennis the other day, I was uh, marking a postgraduate paper by a group. And it was on the Baptist churches in Victoria. And they were setting out to prove, this group, that Baptist churches aren't involved in compassionate issues, that they're just interested in getting big. Well, they went, and to their credit, they found that they're quite surprised that the largest Baptist churches were actually doing a great deal to help humanity at the core level. But what disappointed this group of evangelicals in this evangelical college was that none of these churches were taking up the march to get women rights to abort their own children. Or they weren't supporting the rights of gays to equal marriage. And they were surprised at that. So every time they wrote this, I wrote in the margins, what surprised you? Why is this surprising? These ideas have never been part of historical Christianity. These ideas do not correlate with the New Testament. The next thing I heard about this is that this college was served with a five-page legal letter from a lawyer who was one of the students demanding my sacking because I was repressing, wait for it, freedom of intellectual thought. I was actually trying to get them to think. (laughs) But you see, they've been pickled in political correctness and they'd lost that capacity years ago. Folks, we have the mandate to be gospel people in every age. 
and it will cost us. My college backed off as fast as they could. I should have handed him my resignation right then. If you want to know what college to come to, if you're going to spend your hard-earned to go and study, come and see me. There's not a lot I could commend. Don't waste your time in something that is less than godly. A few years ago, I came to realise that if we're going to be a church upon which our still children will be able to stand on our shoulders, if we're going to be that sort of Christianity that will be historic and will have the culture come knocking on our door in another hundred years when the Renaissance does happen, then first of all, we've got to know the current game. We cannot be ignorant of the sort of political correctness that paganism is dishing up. Every set of stupid ideas that secular men come up with have been invented hundreds of years ago. We should have seen it coming. We've got to get ourselves informed. We've got to know the terms of trade. But secondly, we must resist the temptation to merge the gospel with the terms of trade that pagans are offering us. We cannot build a church which will last one or two generations if we accept their fundamental worldview as ours. And thirdly, we've got to develop a little bit of spine and prepare to be rejected and called names, maybe even be sued. What's more important is that the church will have a future and will be faithful to the Jesus who died and rose and reigns. In China a few years ago, now there's a politically correct atmosphere, I had the pleasure of running into a young pastor who'd been a technocrat down in a southern city and uh, his name, false name, was Joshua, the name he went by publicly. He had come to the Lord only few years ago and if this stuff was true then he was going to share it and he decided to become a pastor he got hold of a bible and he read it from cover to cover he was already well educated in the ways of Maoism and he started this church and he won about 80 people to the Lord and like Paul he needed to get his license to be able to operate they wouldn't give it to him because he wasn't part of one of the official state religions, the Three Self Movement, the Marxist church. And so he decided to keep on with his church, applying for some place to meet, scout hall, town hall, community centres. Every time he got it, he'd be discovered and they'd rip up the, the, the terms and he'd have to move on, kept on moving on, right until the point where... The, he was persona non grata and his people weren't allowed to move into any public building and so they moved into the local botanical gardens called the People's Park. Rain, hail or shine, they were there on Sunday and they were worshipping the Lord and the Lord was adding numbers to their day, day by day, week by week because people saw that their mood matched the message. These people were willing to suffer so that message must be valuable. They weren't mergers, melters, 
They were people with the mandate. And then he got arrested. It had to happen. He knew that that was going to happen. He potentially faced 28 years in jail for breaking the religious code. When he came to court, the prosecution had really stacked everything up. He was, he was fined for even having bad plumbing in his house and parking tickets. And they tried to, they were going to bury him in prison. 28 years he's looking at. His people kept meeting while he was being tried. And they kept praying for him. They kept praying for themselves. His day in court finally came and he went before the judge. The judge basically said, here's the list of charges. And he read out these charges to him. And Joshua said to the judge, oh, is that all? (laughs) You've forgotten the most important one. And that is... Acts 17, 30 to 31. If you really knew what I believed, you'd imprison me straight away because I believe, and he went on for the next 25 minutes outlining the four spiritual laws that he understood. And he gave that judge the best opportunity to hear the gospel that he would ever hear. Undiluted. He realised that for this hour he had been born church prayed seven days later he was released with no charge he went back to church the next week to find they'd grown from 80 to 120 as they worshipped in the rain sounds like the spirit of Paul doesn't it folks our children are going to stand on our shoulders We've got to have backs that can handle the weight of responsibility for the gospel in this day. May God give you that sort of spine and that sort of mind to see the difference. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this hour We thank you, Lord, that we might see the world in which we live. We want to thank you especially this morning for the life of one man, the Apostle Paul, who was able to see so clearly the game that was afoot. We thank you that he had so met you so powerfully that he was not prepared to compromise you in the most hostile of environments. Help us, Lord, to have half of that spirit as we turn the corner into this year. May we be front foot Christians, unashamed of our Lord, proclaiming the gospel where others would say we should keep quiet. Providentially affect the legislators, we pray, for the sake of our children and our society and human suffering itself. We pray this in Jesus' name.